I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. We're here at the end of 2020. Today, it's just me, you, me, a microphone. It's a little bit weird over here on my end. I'm used to talking with people. And in conversation, it's easy to find a flow, a rhythm, uh, find something that is of interest and let it unfold. But when I'm just sitting here and kind of looking out the window and thinking about what I want to say about 2020, oh man, I don't know about you, it's kind of like stage fright, your mind goes blank. So I'm going to have a little sip of tea here. I've got a lovely cup of oolong tea sent to me by Eva Hui. Eva, you may not have heard Eva's name, but she is an essential ingredient of Geological. She helps with so many of the behind the scenes things that go on here. I really could not do it without her particular influence. I'm drinking a lovely cup of oolong tea. It's oolong tea. It was grown here in the United States of America. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but when you think about it, the medicine we practice in many ways is also grown here in the United States of America. Chinese medicine has been here, at least in our particular portion of North America. Well, it's been here since the 1800s in the Chinese communities, but it's really only been since about the 70s that it started finding its way more into the mainstream. And it's been there long enough that it has taken root. It's grown its own kind of fruit here in the United States. All you've got to do is listen to some of the podcasts that we've done over the past couple of years here. You will hear a tremendous variety of ways of thinking about and practicing the medicine. That, that When you think about it, it comes from a few basic essentials in terms of theories and ideas, and yet we can take the five phases, we can take the six Jing, we can take the particular ancient Chinese way of looking at the world, looking at nature, looking at how we are in it, use that to help other people. And it's such a privilege to be able to sit down with other practitioners and share their thoughts and their ideas about the practice of medicine. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine, and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. 
This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. I'm going to take a little time here today just to hang out with you over this delightful cup of tea. I want to talk about the highlights of 2020. Oh, man. 2020, what a year, huh? I want to take a look at where it took the podcast. We're going to peer into the crystal ball a little bit, take a look at 2021, where we see the podcast going, some things coming up that I want to tell you about. And I want to dig a little bit into some of my own challenges and questions that arose in 2020. You know, in times of difficulty, there's always opportunities. And there's a couple things that happened for me this year that I'd like to share with you in this time together that we have that have helped me with my practice and helped me with thinking about medicine and uh, life in general. And then I've got some questions from some students. I've got some friends who teach at, at some of the different schools. And one of the big surprises for me over the years of doing geological is the amount of students that listen to this podcast. And in fact, here in the month of December, if you listen to some of the earlier episodes with uh, Barry Danilian and with Egan Bullock, uh, these are two people in their 50s who have engaged the practice of Chinese medicine. They're still students, but they have brought with them a wealth of life experience. And it's such a delight for me that students find usefulness and help 
with the podcast in their studies and in thinking about what they're going to do out in the world. And so I've got some questions here from students that I'm going to go over toward the end of the podcast. So I hope you pull up your own cup of tea or coffee or whiskey or whatever you like to drink on a nice cold winter's day. And let's get into this. So the year 2020. All right, not surprisingly, COVID was a big deal. And one of the things that we did with the podcast during that time was to talk to different practitioners and get different points of view on how we could be helpful in terms of serving our community, our family, keeping ourselves healthy, and how we could start to think about and and use the Chinese medicine that we've learned in service of our communities. From the classical perspective... We talked with Heiner Fruhoff and had his perspectives on using the old Chang Hanlun ways of thinking. And we had modern views of Chinese medicine, uh, long-term Beijing residents, Shelley Oaks and Thomas Guerin. They compiled a book of materials on how COVID was being taken care of in mainland China. And they generously shared that with our community for free. Uh, or you could give a donation, and um, that's a fantastic resource. I will have a link to that material on the show notes page. If you didn't get a chance to check that out before, now's a good time to look into it. And then we also had some modern masters, Jin Zhao, a practitioner from Chengdu. Jin Zhao and some other doctors have a very deep background in the classics, but they were also taking that classic material and those classic ways of looking at epidemiology and combined it with modern telemedicine. They were using an app called WeChat, uh, sort of like the uh, WhatsApp of China, and we're helping to treat people all across China using uh, telemedicine and prescribing herbs. We had a conversation with him as well. Again, I'm going to put a link to that over on the show notes page. Uh, to all those COVID resources, in fact, because COVID is something that even though it's been almost a year now, it's still something that we are in the midst of figuring it out. We are in the midst of living with it, finding out what life is like, and, and really more importantly, finding out what our medicine does with it. And speaking to that, what our medicine does with it, uh, we also had a conversation with the folks over at the Seattle Institute of East Asian Medicine, They're doing some innovative research over there uh, where they're tracking clinical results with the practitioners who are using a variety of methods to treat the COVID issue as well. So again, all those resources over on the show notes page. Additionally, Geological ran a panel with LASA OMS where we discussed how COVID has challenged us to change our practices in response to this pathogen and to consider ways of how we can use both medicine and technology to be of service to our patients and really looking at how do we do our work when the usual tools and ways of working aren't available to us. Over the year, we've had some conversations with students, as I'd mentioned. You know, I was thinking about talking about some of the favorite shows that I've had, but it's it's hard to pick out a favorite. I so appreciate all the different practitioners that have given their time 
and spent some time sharing their knowledge and their ideas about medicine. It, it's such an incredible community and diverse community that we have. But there's, uh, there's a couple things that do stand out. Again, first, the conversations that I've had with students over the past year have given me a lot of hope and appreciation for what the new people coming up and coming out into practice are bringing to our world and bringing to this medicine. I, I feel immensely optimistic that Chinese medicine, acupuncture, East Asian medicine, whatever you want to call this stuff, is in good hands with the new people that are coming along. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation that I had with Jason Robertson. I met Jason years ago back in Beijing, and we always like to get together from time to time and chew the fat. And uh, the show that we did, uh, it was last month, on questions was one of my favorites. As you know, as a podcast host, I find questions to be so essential to the work we do and so essential to puzzling out all the things that we don't yet understand. It, it's so important. And both Jason and I have been impressed over the years with some of the exquisite questions that certain practitioners will ask. And it just opens up a whole realm of inquiry that we might not have seen before. So you want to catch that show if you haven't heard it already. Richard Hammerschlag was on talking about the process of inquiry and research. Margot Rossi and Nick Pohl with their work on how we use questions to help our patients listen to their own wisdom and solutions. Those are delightful conversations. And Margot and Nick have done some work with Geological as well in the classes that we've taught, and you're going to hear more about them next year as well. And then there's Charlie Braverman, who has been practicing for, I think, something like 20 years. But unlike so many of the practitioners that we hear about these days, that they're new and they're starting out and they're trying to figure out how to make this thing work, Charlie is more at the end of his practicing career. And so our conversation was about retirement, how you wind down something that you've been doing for a long time, and what life looks like when you no longer do the thing that you used to do on a daily basis that gives your life meaning. It got me to thinking about all the ways, all throughout life, that we have things that we do, and at some point, we put them aside so that we can do something else. And just because you leave a practice that you've done for 20 years, it doesn't mean that you stop growing or you stop learning things. That was a delightful conversation. I treasure all these conversations and really do appreciate the generosity of all those who have the courage. You know, it takes a little courage to sit down and have a conversation with somebody where you've got a topic, but no script. You don't know where it's going to go. And I think for myself. This is one of the things that certainly keeps me engaged and interested with the podcast. And I'm always so curious to see where things go. You know, it's not unlike sitting down in a clinical situation with a patient, right? Someone comes in, they may have a list of complaints. Maybe you've already read their history and you've got a sense of who they are, but it's not until you sit down. It's not until you've taken some time. It's not until you've had some sort of exchange that it's possible to get a sense of who somebody is and how you might be able to help them. One of the things I've always appreciated about the podcast is the opportunity to sit down with people 
that you perhaps have never heard of. And often I've not heard of them. Somebody suggests them to me or I've read something. Somehow another practitioner catches my attention with the work that they're doing. Or I hear other people talking about them in the work that they do. You know, we tend to glorify the masters in our work. And there's a big emphasis on mastery in our work. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't do our utmost best at whatever level we're at and whatever we're doing in our practice. But at least from my point of view at this point in time, I suspect the vast majority of us, we're not going to be masters. We do have a shot if we're attentive, if we work hard, if we allow our practice to teach us. I think we have a good shot at being solid journeymen and solid journeywomen. I think we have the ability to be fine craftspeople in the work that we do and that our work can sustain us quite well and our work can give us endless learning throughout the career that we have with it. But again, one of the things that I love about the podcast is I have this opportunity to sit down with people who are simply busy in their clinic. They are working hard at polishing their craft. They are attentive to unfolding their own evolution inside of the medicine and taking what's come to them, learning to use it well, and then having the generosity to sit down with us here on the podcast and share what they've learned. Some of those folks have engaged with teaching classes here on the podcast. There's Toby Daly and the ongoing discussions that I've had with him on the Sa'am acupuncture method and uh, the generosity that he's brought forward in teaching classes here. Oren Kaviti and his innovative Antake method. I, I am so grateful to him because for the longest time, I didn't really use moxa. I have these lungs that are not particularly strong. Moxa is not something that I've ever really been able to use that well because it was just a little bit too smoky for me. And that fine rice grain Japanese moxa, while I love getting it, I just, uh, it's, I think it's something in my personality. I just don't have the attentiveness uh, to work in that way. But the Antake method, has allowed me to engage with using moxa and all the benefits that it has in a way that doesn't cause problems with my lungs. And the other thing that I love about it, it's so hands-on. It's like a little bit of body work. It's a little bit of uh, twena. It's some moxa. It's some meridian palpation. If you like putting your hands on people, I encourage you to listen to the episode that we did and to check out the uh, coming classes that we're going to have on the Antake method. It's really exquisite stuff. Some of the other classes that we had over the year, uh, again with Nick and Margot, talking about using language and using questioning. We did conversations and communicating with Chi in 2020 and look for more of that kind of engagement with language coming up in the new year. And then in November, a delightful conversation with Sabina Vilms in discussing Sue Wen number five. I absolutely love her book, Humming with Elephants, and we went through some of that material. I think one of the most profound things that I've gotten from that particular book and my conversations with Sabina is this idea that there are two kinds of change. There is 
Hua type change, which is more like transformative change, like something completely changes into something else. And then there's the Bian type change, which is more of this step-by-step incremental change. I hadn't really thought about these two different kinds of change until I had read that in her book and then had these discussions with her. And I found that it's been extremely helpful to me in clinic to, how do I say this, sort of be able to gauge and understand what kind of change people are asking for. And on the other side of that, what type of change they might be already in the midst of and engaged in. You know, much in the same way that it's helpful to know if someone is dealing with an excess or a deficient condition. It's helpful to know what kind of change somebody is dealing with. And that conversation with Sabina, I thought was really, really helpful. You'll find that as a class coming up in the new year as well. So keep your eyes posted on the website for that. Another one of our highlights here in 2020 was working with the Shennong Society. We had an opportunity to take the classes that were taught by Volker Scheid, as well as the lectures given by Jean Gablet, as well as a panel discussion, and turn those into some online learning opportunities here on the podcast. So you can purchase those separately and listen to them and get NCCAOM credits, or we also have a bundle for those of you herbalists who just can't get enough of that kind of thing. We're particularly delighted that we could bring you the learning with Volker Scheid. Volker is a longtime practitioner, researcher, anthropologist, practitioner, translator, and he's got some really fascinating ideas about Chinese medicine, a thing he calls metapractice, and how to use that to bring together in a very inclusive way, different aspects of practice, different traditions of practice, so that you can roll it all into the work that you do. So again, check out those Shenlong Society classes with him. I think that especially if you're an herbalist, you're going to find it very, very helpful and very interesting. In 2020, there were also some shows where the guest drove the bus and interviewed me. I found this refreshing and I also love the idea of other people bringing their questions and exploration to Geological. So look for more of that in the coming year as well. And if you have an idea for a series that you'd like to host, reach out and let me know. Geological is a place for all of our voices. And I'd love to have discussions here that range into areas that aren't particularly on my radar of interest, but they might be on yours. And I've been noodling around with the idea of having some guest interviewers or maybe even running some small series of different subjects. And so if you have a hankering for some podcasting, or you'd like to have some discussions, or you just kind of want to play around with this a bit, maybe dip your feet into it and be able to reach out to our community, I'd love to hear some of the ideas that you've got in mind. So you can email me about those. Finally, here at the end of the year, we have a new back end for Geological. Now, this is going to help us to create more ways, not just to feel connected to our community of practitioners, but to be able to be more connected and interactive as well. So in the coming year, watch for discussion groups, uh, as well as some mentorship opportunities with some of the teachers that have been on Geological. And I also am going to be opening up some time for some mentorship opportunities. So keep your eyes open for that. And we'll be letting you know more about that as the new year unfolds. By the way, uh, Quick reminder, if you're a 
member of Geological. If you're a subscriber, a Geologician, first of all, thank you. I do so appreciate your contribution to helping Geological arrive into your podcast feed every Tuesday. I, I really can't do this without you. Those of you that Archie Logicians, uh, because of the new website and some security concerns, you'll need to pop onto the website and re-put in your credit card number to keep your membership going. So when you get a moment, please be sure to do that. I want to turn now to something that I learned during the period of COVID. And if you've listened to certain episodes in the podcast, you've already heard this, but it's something that has really stuck with me. And so here at the end of the year, I want to share a little bit about my thoughts on practice and the burden of practice. This is something that I didn't know that I'd been experiencing until COVID came along and many of us shut our practices down at that point out of uh, concern for what we might be facing or even sometimes our cities required us to do that. But regardless of the reason that, that we closed our practices, I too shut mine down for a couple of months. And one of the things that I noticed, one of the very first things that arose for me, oddly enough, and very much a surprise to me, was this sense of being unburdened. It's like all of a sudden, I didn't have patience to take care of. And while at first, I had this idea that I was going to be anxious about that, like, where's my money coming from? And what am I going to do with myself? What actually happened was I had this incredible feeling of lightness. I had this incredible sensation of relief that I didn't have to be taking care of people. I have spent the past 20 plus years of my life working with people in the clinic. And to have this moment where I didn't have anybody that I had to take care of, I realized that although I have the privilege of practicing medicine, I have the privilege of helping people with their health and their well-being and puzzling through some of the more curious points of life as we go through health challenges, I also realized that I had a deep sense, and yeah, the word is just that, unburdened, and, and it bothered me at first. Because I'm thinking, unburdened. Unburdened from what? Why would I be burdened? It's a privilege to get to do the work that I do. But as I sat with it, and thank you, COVID, for giving me some time to be away from my practice and to give me a long, empty space so that I could noodle on this, I realized that along with the privilege, there's a shadow side of our practice. And that shadow side is that we do care for others. And that shadow side depending on how you practice, is that we give up parts of our lives. We give up parts of ourselves. We give up our time. We take on other people's difficulties in service of helping them to find some relief. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. 
This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. It's one of these things where, at least for myself, and I invite you to look at at yourself for a moment. Look into this. Is there a price that you pay for doing the work that you do? Is there a price emotionally? Is there a price in terms of time that you're not with your family? Or maybe you're ignoring your own health. You should be out exercising, but you're seeing patients. Or you're not eating as well because you're too busy seeing patients. Or just that in taking on the burden of others, we ignore the own burdens that we carry for ourselves. You know, there's this archetypical image of the healer. And you see this in Jungian psychology. You see this in the Greek and Roman mythology. I suspect there's other mythologies as well, but those are the ones I'm most familiar with because I loved those mythological stories as a kid, and I read them over and over and over. And those were the ones that kind of stuck with me in a way. But there's this image, and you find it everywhere, of the wounded healer, that there is something in us that is broken, it's hurt, it's wounded. And part of the way that we work through our life is looking to resolve that difficulty. Now, sometimes that drives you to doing things that are incredibly antisocial. And sometimes that drives you to like creating big businesses so that you'll feel like you've got some kind of uh, self-worth or that you've got some kind of uh, resources in the world so that you can make some changes that way. And some of us are drawn into the path of healing. And I would go so far as to say that any of us that have been drawn into this, there's probably something in ourselves that is still not quite all the way resolved. And the curious thing about the wound that a healer carries is that in some ways gives us the energy to do the work that we do. Because we understand how things can go wrong, it sometimes gives us insight into helping to set things right. And, you know, I often think of this wound, this archetypical idea of the wound. It's a little bit like that grain of sand that starts the process of creating a pearl. Right? Pearls are something of great beauty, and, and they take time to form. But it's this coating. It's this layer. And, and yes, it can be beautiful, but it's all about an initial irritation. It's all about an initial hurt of some sort that the organism is trying to deal with. And in this case, glossing things over, putting layers and layers of protection upon it. And certainly we can do that. You know, you look in the psychological world and, and, and so many different psychological traditions talk about this as well, that there is this part of us 
that although we are the healer, it also needs its own healing. You know, in some ways, our clinical work, I think, challenges us to be aware of when we're dealing with our patients' issues and when we're dealing with our issues. And for myself, this time of COVID has been a tremendous gift in looking at this sense of burden that I carry and to look at some of my own issues around what drew me into this work, what keeps me involved with this work, and how to be attentive to that stuff that usually is kept in shadow. And so for me, in this year of 2020, I have come to realize that along with the privilege of doing the work that I do, there is also a burden that I carry in it. I pay a price for doing the work that I do. And it used to be something that was completely outside of my awareness, for decades actually, outside of my awareness. But thanks to COVID, I realize there is this other part that goes along with the privilege of doing the work we do. And that's the burden, you know, or, or sometimes the healing work that we have to do as well. And so I, when I think about burden at this point, this, it's been oh, over six months since I first started to work with this. I would say that it's not something that is resolved and put to rest, but more like I now have another voice and another perspective to consider whenever I think about adding extra time into my schedule, or if I want to work with a certain kind of patient, or if I want to change my practice in some way, or even for that matter, what I want to do with the podcast and where I want to take it and what I'm willing to do and to be more aware of the prices that I pay for doing the work that I do. So COVID, you've been a tough master, but at the same time, I feel like I've got access to resources that I didn't know that I had before. You know, anytime we take something out of that shadowy part of ourselves, we learn something. And, and that brings me to another topic too. And you might've heard me talk about this a little bit. You're going to hear me talk about it more going into the year of 2021. Uh, in the fall, I was invited to do a keynote talk at the Oregon Acupuncture Association. And when we were noodling on topics and things to talk about, I realized that I wanted to tackle three things that us acupuncturists, and I count myself firmly in this number, but many of us acupuncturists, we have some issues with. And those are the issues of money, power, and authority. Now, that talk from the Oregon Acupuncture Association. It'll actually be up as a class that you'll be able to get some NCCA credits for here in the very, very near future. But I think it's also a topic that's worth investigating and worth looking at and worth noodling over and doing this over a course of time. Because the more that we look into the things that make us uncomfortable, the more we hopefully can get a handle on what our fears are, we can get a handle on what our hurts are. We can get a handle on all the things that we'd like to avoid that it's probably better if we face up to it. So money, power, and authority, those are three things that I've struggled with a lot in my life over the course of many, many years. And so I'm just putting it out there right now that these are things that I think, like that sense of being burdened that I didn't know that I had, 
These can become tremendous resources if we look into these, what I would formally call a shadowy aspect. And, and in many ways, there still are shadow aspects of it. And it's our job to bring that stuff out into the light. One more thing about money, power, and authority. Like I said, these are going to be some topics that I would like to explore in some podcasts as we move forward into the new year, maybe some classes as well, but especially some podcasts. And if you have some ideas or thoughts, or you've been able to wrestle with these, and you have some inspiration, some ideas, I'd love to hear from you. Because I'd be delighted to have you on the show to talk about that kind of stuff. If you're in the midst of wrestling with these aspects of practice, uh, and you're up for a conversation of exploration, I'm also interested in hearing from you because I, these are some themes that I would like to unpack a bit as the new year unfolds. And so if this is something that calls to you in any kind of way, uh, reach out to me via the email. All right. Like I said, it's a little difficult for me just to ramble on. I'm much more used to doing dialogue or having conversation. There really is some magic. There's a kind of a fuel that keeps the brain and the heart moving when I'm in dialogue. And this monologue thing is a little bit more difficult. So I hope that you've found this useful. I'm going to try to have a little bit more of a dialogue here right now, but it's uh, going to be through some questions that some students have had that, uh, like I said, I've got some friends that teach at some different schools and, and the students have been generous enough to contribute some questions. And so for all y'all's out there that are in the process of learning, well, actually, I think we're probably always in the process of learning, but uh, especially you folks that are in school or newly in practice, I, I hope that you find these questions to be helpful. I'm going to go over a few right now, and then, uh, and then we'll wind it down. So first question is, do you have any suggestions on how to find a style or a teacher after graduating? It's a good question, and it seems like so often it does seem like we get out of school and then we're trying to figure out who am I? And what am I doing with this stuff? I think there's plenty of different avenues that you can go down once you're out of school. And hopefully while you've been in school, there's already some things that have sort of caught your attention. And I think we're lucky at this point in time as well, because there are lots of different directions that you can go, some very traditional, some way more modern. Uh, like I said, much like the tea that I'm drinking right now, there is something that has come from the Orient into our Western world. It has taken root here, and it's you know incumbent upon us, actually, to take what is ours and bring it forward into our practice and into the world. You know, it's, it's when I think about medicine and learning and practicing, um, and this is something a friend of mine said to me in a conversation here just earlier today, it's like we are stewards of the medicine, right? We are, we are husbanding something precious that's been given to us. And what that is that's ours to care for, I think is part of the journey, is figuring that out. And so in terms of what you do when you get out of school, finding a style or a teacher, I think it has a lot to do with what lights you up. I mean, I, I, we all have some kind of internal compass that we know when we're hitting true north, right? I mean, you know about this from like making friends, right? There's certain people and you just like click with them right away. You know about this like from dating 
or you know maybe finding a, a partner for your life or you know, marriage or a, you know some other kind of partner where you connect with somebody and you're just there's something that lights you up you want to know more you you want to go deep you want to see where things go there's there's something that you feel in your chest right there's something expansive in your spirit there's something that lights you up and i i think that in terms of finding something to practice or a teacher to work with or a style, you've got to go out and see what works for you. You've got to, and, and I think, I mean, that's easier said than done in some ways. And I, I think there's another piece to it that to give anything its due, you need to take the time to study it and learn it on its own terms, and then learn how to use it in your practice, right? And I, I think it does not help to dabble. And it certainly doesn't help to learn a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and then like try to mash it together in a way that seems to make sense to you. I found through my own experience, that's usually not helpful. And what is helpful is to stick with something long enough where you can kind of learn it from the inside, and you can make it work in your practice. You can actually understand the mechanics of how the whole thing works and then take it into your work and see what it has to tell you, see what it has to teach you and see if it lights you up, right? You got you to gotta give it a little bit of a fair do and try different things, but don't do it in a willy-nilly way. Find something and like stick with it and see what it has to teach you. I've also heard people say things like, well, you know, what's the best technique or, you know, what's the best method? And uh, as a buddy of mine who does martial arts likes to say, he says, well, you know, the best martial art is the one that you know how to use. You know, all nets will catch fish. The trick is, do you know how to use the net? So uh, use your heart, use your sense of spirit, whatever lights you up, I'd say follow it and, and really work it. I mean, especially when it gets hard, work it. Uh, another question. For better or worse, the more I learn about Chinese medicine, the more I see it everywhere I go. But I'm starting to become hyper aware of all the bad lifestyle choices that I, my friends, my family make. How can I deal with the tendency to overanalyze, worry about, and criticize unhealthy life choices? Okay, so I would say, first of all, um, what other people do with their health is none of your business, right? What other people do with their life is none of your business. Healthy, unhealthy, I, oh boy, I, I have found myself lately, and when I say lately, I'm, I'm, I'm talking the past five or six years, I think, really doing my utmost to get rid of the words good and bad in my clinical practice. I think it's really easy for our minds to get into that's good. We should do more of that. That's bad. We should not, you know, be doing that. It gets into a very judgmental kind of thing. And while we do need good judgment in our, in our practices and in our work, I find that it's much more helpful to look at what's helpful or what's not helpful. So in, instead of like judging good, bad, and like you should do it different or I should do it different, you know, a lot of times people do things for reasons that make good sense to them. So let me give you an example. Smoking, 
All right. Um, smoking, of course, is considered a bad habit. People that smoke are considered pariahs in our modern world. And everybody knows that it's not good for your health. And yet there are some people that do it and do it and do it. And they don't want to quit. And I mean, I used to work with people to try to help them to quit smoking. I've given up on that because what I found is that most people wanted to use acupuncture to make them stop smoking. It wasn't something that they really wanted to stop, but they wanted the acupuncture to make them do it. And I found acupuncture can't make you do anything you don't want to do. But what I discovered in that, in that time is that people smoke for good reasons, right? So number one, like smoking is this great deep breathing exercise. How often do Americans breathe deeply? Not often. Smoking is great because it's kind of the international symbol for don't fuck with me right now. You can go outside and have a cigarette. You can get some space. You can get away from people. It's kind of like a, a cloak of invisibility for five minutes. I mean, there's, there's good reasons that people do things that may not be helpful for them. But think about it from this other point of view. If you don't know how to set yourself some boundaries and say, hey, look, don't bug me right now, then going outside to have a cigarette might be better than punching them in the face. I mean, there's, there's reasons why people do the things that they do. And yes, I think it's helpful if we do things and have behaviors and dietary habits and all that that, that are useful and promote our well-being. Um, but sometimes it's helpful to look into the, I'm using air quotes here, bad habits and see what it is that the person is trying to get out of them that might be helpful for them. It's also easy, I think, as a practitioner, because we're dealing with pathology all the time, that it's, it's easy to, to see pathology when we could also be looking at what strengths people have and focusing on the strengths, using what's right to help take care of what's wrong. So I would encourage you to take your critical mind and, and not get rid of it, but just be attentive to it. Uh, notice how judgmental you are around these kinds of situations and, and what that might mean for you and what it might mean for the other people. And to drop the words good and bad for a while. Find some other way of talking about these things. And maybe just give yourself a little bit of space and also realize that there's a time to work in your clinic. And maybe that's a time to really focus on these things. And then there's the time where you're like not on the clock and just let yourself live your life, right? We all need some downtime. Uh, even though I am a Chinese medicine practitioner and it's kind of in my bones at this point, you know, if I'm at a party, I'm not, I don't want to be diagnosing people. I want to be having a beer and a good time. All right. I don't know if that's helpful, but I hope it is. Uh, a question on uh, to get duchy or not to get duchy. As an assistant, I see practitioners who prioritize the arrival of chi that they themselves sense and others who make sure that the patient feels it. Michael Max, what do you have to say about it? Well, yeah, duchy is one of those interesting things, isn't it? And I know that in school we are taught that it's like a sensation and that you're that sometimes the patients are supposed to feel it, especially I think with the uh, the Chinese methods, usually very heavy-handed. You want the patient to feel it. Um, I've certainly found in my work that in treating Chinese people, if they didn't feel the duchi, they didn't think I knew what I was doing. So I, I make sure that they feel something. Um, that's especially people in Asia. It, it's just the way that they do it over there. But in my practice here in the states. 
I have found that the idea of Dutchy is is something that's been more of a question for me than um, how do I say like an object or something that I'm chasing. I think that something needs to happen when we put a needle in. And, and sometimes, again, and, and depending, too, on the methods in the tradition that you're working in. All right, so let me back up a little bit here. If the tradition that you're working in and the methods that you're using say that you're supposed to get dudgy and the patient is supposed to feel it, then by all means, make sure that the patient feels it because that method finds that that's important. And to do that method, to do that style, then you've got to do the style. There are other methods where it's the practitioner who feels something, and in which case, when you're needling people, make sure that whatever feeling that you're looking for to get with that needle, that you're getting it. Again, different traditions teach different things. Different traditions ask of us different ways of observing and working. And to really understand a tradition, I mean, you have to be able to do it. For myself these days, and this is just me talking, when I think of Dutchie, what I am thinking about, feeling, experiencing is that something. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Happens when I put in a needle. It might be the way that the patient's complexion changes. It might be the way their breath changes. I often look for changes in the pulse to see if the treatment is helpful. Sometimes there's things that I feel. Sometimes I'll just feel the body kind of melt and relax as I'm working with it. Sometimes the feeling in the room itself will shift. And I see that as a kind of expression of Dutchy as well. When I, when I think of Dutchy, the arrival of Chi, I think what I want to do here right now is, is not give you an answer, but invite you into an inquiry. What does Dutchy mean for you? How do you know when it has arrived? What does it feel like? What does it taste like? What happens for the patient when Dutchy arrives? What happens for you? the practitioner, when Dojie arrives. I think that Dojie is an essential aspect of our work because it lets us know 
that we are engaging in a conversation with our patients using the needles. Dochi is that vibration, that resonance, that's something that comes back to us to let us know that something's happened. And, and how we do that and how you feel it and how you work it and like the language of Dochi for you, I think can certainly be a personal exploration. Again, certain traditions will encourage one kind of dodgy experience over another. And again, if you're working that tradition, by all means, use it. But also, I would say invite yourself into the inquiry of what it is. And, um, and then maybe keep us posted. Come on the podcast and let us know what you've discovered. All right, here's a great question. Is it possible to fully understand Chinese medicine in one's lifetime? <laughs> Probably not, because I don't think there's a Chinese medicine. Number one, I think there's Chinese medicines. Number two, I don't think that it's something that can be completely quantified and like squeezed down into, you know, a set of methods. I think it's something that's living and alive. I think there are aspects of tradition that come down to us because of who we are, who our teachers were, where we happen to be in, in terms of our own personal development or our own interests. I think that Chinese medicine is something, like I said a little bit earlier here in this conversation, that it's, uh, it's kind of a living influence in the world. And it's something that comes down to us. And partly it is our job to learn what we can so that we can be helpful to other people. Partly it is our job to learn it so that we can take care of it and that we can use it, well, or maybe allow it to use us when you think about it to unfold in our lives and to unfold in our experience, to unfold in our practices. Uh, and there's elements of it, if you stick with it long enough, that it's clearly yours to steward, it's yours to husband, it's yours to care for, much like, like a forester would care for a forest or a gardener cares for a garden or maybe parents care for children. There are things that come to us through the traditions that we engage with and there are things that come to us through our teachers. And, and then there is what comes up and out and through us, uniquely us, as we engage with the medicine. And it's our job to care for that. And it's our job to use that, uh, to use it in service of helping the world and of helping our patients. It's our job to use it to share it with the next generation of people that are coming along. Because there is this long, long chain of people who have been practicing this stuff that we do have to learn and we use our knowledge about and we know it like, like, like you know something, like you know how to drive to the grocery store, you know how to you know, fix a meal or you know how to do like anything in the world. There's that aspect of knowing, but there's also an aspect that's discovery and, and there's an aspect of the thing kind of coming through you. And so, is it possible to know it all? Um, no, I, I think that would be hubris to say that, that it is possible to know it all, but it is possible to learn enough of the tradition that it will continue to teach you 
and it will continue to help you in your practice. And, uh, and it's possible to contribute what you've discovered to that as well. So that's where I'm at with that. Uh, let's see here. Are there any moments when you want your patients to feel or get better more than they want themselves to feel or get better? Hmm. You know, I don't know if I'd phrase the question that way. I mean, I get the question. I understand the question. It seems like sometimes people come in and it's like, we're doing all the work, but they're not really participating. And, you know, when, when you think about how medicine is practiced here in the Western world, and especially the practice of, you know, much of conventional medicine, it, it's that we're going to help you, you're going to get better, and you actually don't have to do much on your part. We're going to fix you but you don't need to engage in the process so much yourself. And that's often the promise of medicine. And I think even, you know, with acupuncture and Chinese medicine, many times people come in with that expectation and, and we also think we can fix them. And there is that aspect of like social contract between us that, you know, there's a person who's a patient, there's a patient who's a doctor and the doctor's going to fix the patient. Well, Sometimes it can go that way, and sometimes people don't really know what they need. Just know that they need something. They're not even sure where to begin. They're hoping that we can help. Um, all that said, I would say that there are those moments when I just don't feel like I'm quite connecting with a patient. And, and back at an earlier part of my practice... I would feel these people who were kind of reticent and I'd like, I felt like I was doing 80% of the work and they were doing 5%. And a couple things about that. At the end of the day, number one, I was exhausted. So that was not so good for me. But number two, I found those people didn't, they didn't really get better. Um, over time, I have come to realize that it's important to have a kind of, uh, how to say it without sounding all woo-woo, um, but like 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 an energetic balance of energy. So what do I mean by that? Okay. So someone comes in and and they're not here's a good example. And, and here's something I actually don't do anymore, but I used to. Okay. So like when a girlfriend or a wife would make an appointment for a husband or a boyfriend, eleven times out of ten, that boyfriend didn't want to be there. And Quite often, they wouldn't show up. But if they did show up, they usually didn't have much to say. It was like pulling teeth to try to get anything out of them to try to help them. And I'd be like 95% putting energy into this relationship trying to help them. And they'd be like, you know, 5% barely there. I found that that kind of thing usually didn't help. Right? Now, now that's an extreme example of a, of a kind of person that you'll see in your clinic or you might see in your clinic. I don't see them anymore because I don't let girlfriends make appointments for boyfriends anymore. But there's other kinds of folks, and you'll feel, I mean, I'm putting that out there as you know a very extreme example because you'll feel other folks, they are there willingly. However, it feels like you're putting a lot of energy into the relationship and, and they're not putting much in. So what I've found, if someone's putting in what I'm going to call 10%, I'm going to step up with about 15 or 20%. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm being lazy or I'm not doing my job or I'm not trying to do the absolute best that I can. But in terms of interaction, there has to be a kind of energetic balance. If you feel like you're constantly leaning toward a patient 
then it's not helpful for you and it's actually not helpful for the patient. They need to be able to kind of lean into whatever it is that they need for themselves. And so I used to kind of judge people and be like, oh, I guess they don't really want to get better. But I don't think that's the case. I think sometimes people just don't know how to get better. Or sometimes people just have blocked up energy or they're just really stagnant or they've been through some trauma or it just takes time sometimes to sit with a person before you learn to trust them. You know, a lot of times I think people, they come to us, they're not sure what to expect. And it sometimes takes a few treatments before they decide that you're a trustworthy character and they're going to open up to you. And so for those folks where it seems like I'm putting in too much energy, I usually back off a little bit and just, just kind of give them some space. And maybe we don't get the very best treatments, but what we're learning to do sometimes at the very beginning of a relationship like that is learn to trust each other and to see if we can kind of dance that dance of a patient practitioner. So that would be my thought on that. If you find that you're being exhausted at the end of the treatment, you're trying too hard, back off a little bit. Give yourself some space. Give the patient some space as well. All right. Is there a moment when you realized, oh, so that's how this works? How come I didn't get to it sooner? Um, yes, I have had, I've had this experience time and time again. I think we've all had this experience. And I think it comes down to this. I think it comes down to that it just takes time. We have to come at things again and again. We have to come at them from different angles. It takes time to understand what we're doing. And it takes time to understand who we are as practitioners. I, when I was a kid, I used to race sailboats competitively, little, little racing boats. They were a lot of fun for a teenage kid. And they kept me out of trouble too, which was a good thing. But one of the things that, that we would talk about with these little sailboats, because a lot of it was done by feel. Okay, I mean, there's theories about sailing and how you do it and you trim your sails to the wind and all that. But a lot of it is about boat balance and body dynamics and what the old hands would call time in the boat. Sometimes you just need time in the boat. You need to be inside the experience of how the wind is and how the water is and how the boat is and how you are with all of that. And I think it's true in clinic as well. I think it's true in a lot of things. It's true in skiing. It's true in cooking. It's true in raising children that you just need a certain amount of time. You need a certain amount of experience. And over time, things come together in ways that your conscious mind it isn't even trying to parse it or put it together. It, it just lands for you. And so you just need some time in the boat. And you just need time for things to come together. When I first moved to Taiwan and I was looking to learn some Chinese, I was in a hurry. I wanted to like learn it and get on with like learning medicine. I was in a big hurry. And the new friends that I was making in Taiwan, they kept saying this phrase to me. They'd say, man, man, lie, man, man, lie. Michael, ni man, man, lie. And, you know, man, man, lie means literally in Chinese, slowly, slowly arrive, right? The characters are slowly, slowly arrive. And what it means is 
like chill out, take your time. Now, when I first heard people saying this to me in Chinese, I thought, I don't have time to mind my lie, goddammit. I got things to do and I'm busy and I want to get on this. And I thought that people were giving me bad advice. And I thought that people were like saying, hey, like chill out. Like, you know, it's like no big deal. But they were not saying it's no big deal. What they were saying was things take time. Go in the direction that you're headed. Keep moving in the direction that you're headed. Take your time. Be attentive. They're not saying be lazy. They're saying be persistent. Be slow. Be persistent. And over time, things come together. And, and I have found that Man Man Lai is probably some of the best advice that I've ever had in my entire life. So why are there moments where you suddenly realize it? Because you've spent some time in the boat. Because you've been slowly, slowly getting to the place where there's a kind of fullness in the sense of things it arrives. And, and, and you feel it and you know it. And I think it's very helpful when that happens to appreciate everything that you've done to bring you to that point of recognizing that, ah, here it is. It's arrived. I'm here. I understand this piece now. It's helpful to have some gratitude. And remember that it takes that time in the boat. Okay, I had a number of questions on starting a practice. So I'm going to just like roll these all into one and uh, share with you some thoughts I've got on starting a practice. So in some ways, I'm a good person to talk about this because I've started three different practices over the course of, of time that I've done this. Uh, last one was about uh, 10, 11 years ago. Uh, but in some ways, I'm a bad person because it's been 10, 11 years since I've started a practice and the world changes and it changes quickly. Um, but I've got a couple of ideas, okay, about like practicing, getting going with your practice and some things to do and some things not to do. And I want to talk a little bit about getting on the first page of Google because you can totally do it. So um, first of all, in terms of starting your practice, I think it's very, very helpful in terms of direction to be clear for yourself what is the problem that you're trying to solve. Okay, we, we all look out at the world. Earlier I was talking about we, we have this wound and often we look out at the world through the wound you know, the wound will guide us. It'll kind of direct us into the place where we can be of service in this world. You know, often we end up, if we've had trauma, we end up working with people who've had trauma. If we've had issues with our musculoskeletal system, we, we may be drawn to that. If you've had addictions, you might be drawn to that. We, we are guided in some ways by our own inner beacons. And so I think it's helpful to look into what are the kind of changes I would like to see happen in the world. Because that's the stuff that's going to call to your heart. And that's the stuff that's going to keep you going through the times when it's, when it's, when it's hard going, when it's difficult. So if you can be clear about the problem that you want to solve in the world, and it could be anything on the level of helping pregnant women give birth to there are social things that I want to see different, uh, choose where you want to go. Choose the thing that holds some juice for you and, and be clear about what the problem is that you, want to, that you want to address. How do you know you've got a good problem to address? You're probably not going to be able to solve it in your lifetime. It's something that will keep you engaged for decades. That's a good, that's a good kind of problem. So be clear about what that is. 
And that will help you to guide yourself. You won't need to look to other people for guidance. Hey, what should I do? You'll know it for yourself. I think that's really important. Secondly, um, and I've seen this on the internet. You've seen it on the internet. I did this when I first started my practice, and I think it's a really bad idea. The bad idea is like borrowing or using somebody else's clinic forms. Okay. Has anybody got a clinic form for XYZ? I think it's a really bad idea to take other people's forms or like take the form that the school used and use that for yourself. Why is it a bad idea? It's a bad idea because you need to make your own. Over time, you are going to make your own because over time, you've got your own questions that you want to ask. Over time, you, you have a sense of how you see a clinical encounter going. Over time, you know the people that you want to work with and the people that you don't want to work with. And so building your own clinic forms from the ground up is a really good way to get clear on who you are, what kind of practice you want to have, and what kind of people you want to see. Think of it not as an arduous thing. I've got to make these forms because I've got to get them filled out by my patient. Think of it as a way of exploring who you are and what you want your practice to be. Okay. When I first started out, I had these like really long forms with all these questions that I actually didn't give a shit about, but I thought I was supposed to. My clinic forms these days are fairly simple. And I also include in there a small paragraph or two on what you can expect by working with me, because people want to know at the outset, who are you? And what am I going to get out of this? And so it's good to have some kind of a statement about who you are and what people can expect from you. But beyond that, Make your own forms because they will be in your own voice. And the most important thing that you can do, especially starting out and especially when you first encounter people, is to be as genuine with them as you possibly can. So build your own forms and let them reflect the practitioner that you are and the practitioner that you will become. Over time, your forms will change as you grow and change as a practitioner. Another piece of advice that I'd give you at the very beginning is don't be too flexible, right? Those patients that are like, oh, do you work on Saturday? Could I get this appointment here? Could I get an appointment there? Um, have your hours that you work and work those hours. And if somebody can't fit into that space, I would encourage you to turn the page on your metaphorical appointment book and book them into another week or two weeks down the road, or three weeks down the road, if that's what it takes. But don't be too flexible in the beginning, because it's important to have a sense of boundaries. And it's important to let your patients know that you've got specific times that you're working, but then you've got times that you don't. People will respect you more when you say no to them. And I know it's difficult in the beginning, because you're trying to get started, and you're trying to be helpful to patients. But it's super helpful to have some boundaries and to hold those. You will be more trustworthy in your patient's eyes when you tell them no in terms of scheduling. So don't be too flexible. One more thing, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Google, and then we're going to wind it down for the day. A lot of folks ask about this issue of being confident when you first get out in practice. And I would tell you that it is impossible to be confident when you begin your practice. There's no way that you can be confident when you first start because confidence 
is what comes from time in the boat. Confidence is what comes from having spent time learning your craft, practicing your art, getting the science behind it all, and understanding however te- whatever techniques you're using, how they work, and when to use them. Confidence comes through experience, and you don't have that much experience when you first start out. Confidence doesn't come from the time that you spent with your teachers or your supervisors. Confidence comes from you, the patient, the room you're in, and the work that you do. Now, it is possible, and I hope you are, when you graduate, competent. You should be competent. You should be able to do the work. But in terms of confidence, that's going to take some time. So let yourself grow into that. And that whole thing you hear about, fake it till you make it, that is some bullshit. You're not faking anything. People know it when you're faking stuff, all right? You're not faking it. You're in the process of gaining experience. You're in the process of building your database of understanding. Confidence will come from that. Confidence will come from your experience. So don't fake it but do engage it. Use whatever competence you have to build your experience and your confidence will come from that. All right. First page of Google. And I'm just going to talk about this briefly. Um, Later in the year, we're going to get a course up on this on, on the website. But basically, I think in this internet connected world, of course, uh, search engines and websites are very, very important to your practice, to getting yourself out there, to having people, but most importantly, to having people find you. There are ways of using a thing that's called content marketing to bring people into your website. I was going to say drive people to your website, but that's not it at all. Really what you're doing is inviting people to your website. And there are ways that you can use the writing on your website. There's ways that you can use a blog There's ways of writing that make your work accessible. But the most important thing that you want to do with your website and you want to do with your writing is to make sure that the people that are looking for you find you with particular keywords and more importantly, that when they finally hit your website, you have material on it. And it's written in a way that's inviting. It's written in a way that's authoritative. It's written in a way that's authentic. And it's written in a way that's informative. And when people find that on your website and the words that you have are already beginning to help them with whatever problem they have, they're going to give you a phone call and they're going to ask for an appointment. I'm going to get into all of this later in a a course. I have been using this kind of content marketing for my own website for years now. And it makes my phone ring all the time. And it makes people, it doesn't make people, it invites people to come in for an appointment. And it's something that you can build. It takes some time. There are companies out there that will sell you SEO services. And there's a certain amount of technical background stuff that you have to do. But I would call that the 20%. It's useful, but it's not going to get you what you need. It's really good content on your website that's going to get you what you need. So something to think about there, okay? All right, friends. Well, I have been yakking long. I'm not used to talking this much, right? I'm usually asking the questions and then a few clarifying questions, but going on and on for over an hour. Holy smokes. Thank you, Eva, for providing me this tier. I would have never gotten through it. So thank you for listening. I hope that you found this to be helpful. 
if you find Geological to be useful, please be sure to tell your friends about it and uh, share this with them. So we're on to the new year. I hope that it's a healthy, prosperous year that brings you exactly the right opportunities, puzzles, and challenges that you need. See you in 2021. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.